Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath to you. It is good. I'm not used to being so live in these monitors. You can decide whether you want to keep me that pepped up or not. It is good. Good to be with you this Sabbath as we continue our, good to see you, Mickey, as we continue our Rescuer series in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so, by the way, as we, um, as we dig in and dip our toe into this particular Sabbath Sermon, the Rescuer is the series-long title, and the title for today is, well, it, it's that. Um, the live stream team was a little confused, trying to decide what they put on the title screen and so on. I said, I don't know. It's, 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 I, I don't know how to, <laughs> how to tell you, but that's the title. You'll understand a little bit more in a minute or two. I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 22 as we go back and forth in this book, digging for what God wants to share with us. As we do this, I want to point out uh, our journals that we have, we have put together for you. If you do not have one, I would recommend you grab one. And here's how you can do it right now. We have deacons that are here that are stationed around, looking around. Now they're going to just pause and let you gather yourself and decide. If you are a child, by the way, these are for you too. There's a message to you in here for how you can draw pictures, what you could do there. If you already have one but you left it at home, you need another one. Perfect. These are for you. Maybe you are a guest and this is the only Sabbath you're going to be here with us. These are for you. Maybe you've already got one and you thought, you know, I like them. I just, uh, I just like them. Then you, they're for you. I welcome you to have one. I am hopeful that as we dig through the book of Revelation, there is a strong likelihood we are going to make our way through uh, some information that you might want, wish you could remember or go check out a little bit more deeply for yourself because you've written a note. Others of us are going to process best by doodling as we listen. Some of us do that well, right? If I were to make three recommendations for you that you would have here with you, it would be a journal where you can take some notes in your own hand, a Bible that you can look in your own hand, and a pen that you can use with your own hand. And by the way, if you want one more strong suggestion when studying prophecy, I would make this one. If you have the opportunity, you should study with other people. If you have the opportunity, do not simply dig into prophecy by yourself. People have a habit of turning prophecy kind of into their own image if they're off on their own. It is really helpful to have somebody else who has another perspective, who may know another thing about the New Testament, the Old Testament, who might have read something and can bounce off your questions or you have doubts and you have concerns to be able to do that. By the way, one of the ways in the back of this particular journal, you'll notice our deeper dive groups where you can gain community, you can dig together. I just strongly recommend it. There are a few recommendations in the back of how you could go deeper. I have now purchased every minute I can for you to find Revelation 22. You have it, Bree? We good? All right, here we go. The sixth verse the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And then jumping to the 20th verse, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Don't know how you walked in here, what your circumstances are, but I know just enough to believe strongly there is somebody you needed to meet here today. He is your rescuer, and he is here. Lord God, as we dig, as we press in, uh, help us fight back confusion to gain something while 
impossible that we could gain everything in this moment. Would you bless us with your spirit? You've told us that you send a spirit who can teach us of all things. Teach us what you need us to know today. And Lord, in the midst of it, because there is a controversy around this world, in the midst of it, we just want to proclaim out loud, you are worthy of our worship. Thank you for being here so that we could worship you. So now, take these moments and make them what you will. In the name of Jesus Christ, we praise your name. Amen. And amen. So, here we are in this series, Rescuer, uh, the book of Revelation. Last week, we touched on two principles that I would like to turn into questions we might ask. Again, if you're a note taker, these two questions should accompany me when I meet the book of Revelation all along the way. The first point that we made last week was that this is indeed, as verse 1 says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yes, it comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ as he shares these visions, these images, these symbols, shares them with John, and they find their way to our pages here. It's true, comes from Christ. But there's another way to read that idea of it being the revelation of Jesus Christ, that in fact, everything we look at in the book of Revelation, God is trying to tell us something about himself. Way more than dates and times and actions, the question you and I need help with is who exactly is this Jesus? Because there are, there are versions of him that frankly some people put forward that are not someone I even want to be involved with. So, if this is the revelation, revealing, uncovering, parting the curtain so we can see clearly who Jesus is, then this is our question that we meet each verse, all of this reading with, what does this tell me about Jesus? So as we read, we're going to ask this question. We're going to get to a, an example passage by the end of this particular study time together where we're going to deploy that question. What does this tell me about Jesus? So there's a second thing that we really outlined last week. We're going to we're going to experiment with it this week and on. And it's this, that John builds revelation out of the materials of the Old Testament. I think we used this example last week, that if in our home we have a picture of my wife and myself, and we were to turn that into a puzzle, anybody here have that? You've, you've maybe at a wedding or somewhere, they turned a picture into a puzzle, and now you can make a puzzle out of you know, my wife and I, but imagine the craftiness of what it would be if you took that puzzle, rearranged those pieces, it would have to be many, many pieces, rearrange those pieces as a puzzle, and it turns out not only can it be a picture of my wife and I, but if you rearrange the pieces, it's a picture of our children. Ah, slick, crafty. This is what John does in the book of Revelation. As scholars will say, those who don't understand what is going on, John is a guy who doesn't know how to write in Greek. And others would say, if you knew what was happening here, you'd realize he's writing Hebrew in Greek. Whoa. And he is craftily using the pieces of the Old Testament given to us by God to help us see not just this new picture of Jesus Christ revealed, but how God has been placing his fingerprints across time. So the question that bears asking with each verse we uncover is what is the Old Testament connection? For over 300 of the 404 verses of the book of Revelation, can be found traced to these pieces of the Old Testament. So, we started with this particular text. Seems like a perfectly reasonable place to start. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which gave, God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And we're going to undercover another principle that will lead to a question we're going to deploy with regularity as we go, all right? Uh, but firstly, a little tiny quiz. What are you looking at here? What are you seeing? Some of you are going to say, well, a very blurry car. Uh, go further into the foreground, and you see what? 
A stoplight, a stoplight. Now, is there anybody here who spent any time in Britain, uh, in England? I see a hand over there. Is that what they call them in England, a stoplight? They do not. Which, by the way, just to be, uh, you know, open and honest, this is a stoplight, but it's also a, a, a go light, right? I mean, and a, hey, calm down light, or as some read that, speed up light. In Britain, these are called semaphores. A semaphore. Because the word sema, sema, is a word for signal or symbol. For is another version of the word light. So, signal light. Okay. They, they found a way to go go and stop all in one. Nice. How about this? Do you know what you're looking at here? Well, this is, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, if I had something to wave. They would at times use, uh, use these positions, but with lights so that you could see very clearly, or with flags, often with the red and the yellow so that they could be seen from a distance so that these are called semaphores. A semaphore system that in fact you can, you can communicate from ship to ship, for instance, all of the letters of the alphabet based on the hand positions that you have going around. Okay, so where are we here? The one that we have as our title for today is the one that is the letter M, but that doesn't, because the letter M is that important, it's because that's important. Our poor folks in the... <clears throat> Live stream room, I, I just don't know how to break it to you, but that's, that's the title right there <laughs> of our talk together. I, I found myself thinking, I could say, we could, we could call this, this presentation symbol or semaphore, but why not use a symbol for it? Because, because centrally, this introduces a question we should ask. You see, a semaphore is a system of conveying information by means of visual signals. So let's go back for a second to Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. If you were paying close attention, you knew what you were looking at, which, why would you? But this little phrase, made it known, comes from, it is the English version, the New International Version of Scripture for the word semano. Some of you are going, hey, wait, 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 say semaphore again slowly, sema, semano. Yep, that little Greek word sema, semano, this means to signify or make known by a means of symbols. So right at the onset, as we launch into this book, the New King James Version would actually say it this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he would make known and he sent and signified, signaled visually, sent it through symbols, so that this book of Revelation is an unpacking of symbols. In the 12th chapter of the first verse, you remember this woman that appears, a great and wondrous Semano, or Simeon, a sign appeared in heaven. Another sign appeared in heaven in the third verse, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his head. Now we're going to dig around a little bit in what, these, what it means to be symbolic and, and what God expects of us and how we can work our way through. By the way, sometimes these symbols are explained and sometimes they are not in the book of Revelation. Would be a lot more helpful if they always were. This one in particular, the third verse, another sign, this dragon. In fact, the 12th chapter, verse 9 says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So Satan, by the way, Right there, we have another example of the Old Testament, right? Because we can read that and quickly fly past the idea that this, this, this dragon, Satan the devil, is referred to as the ancient serpent. But we bring into this story Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? 
So this is obvious to us, the serpent. In fact, if I were to say to you there was a serpent that is symbolic of something, that would be our first go-to, right? Because we're that familiar with that part of Genesis. I wonder how much of the Old Testament we're missing as we dig through that tell us keys to these symbols as we go. But then again, just to underscore, sometimes the symbols in Revelation are explained and sometimes not. This can lead us to a little bit of confusion, desperation, feeling like we can't really spend our time in this. It's just we're not going to make enough ground. Hang in there. Just hang in there. I think we're going to be okay. By the way, the Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew and Aramaic about 300 years before Jesus, because of the change in the culture, so that it could be relevant to the people that knew Greek and not Hebrew, they translated the Old Testament into what is called the Septuagint in Greek, so that if you went to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28, you would notice there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. What do you suppose is the Greek word that's used there? Yeah. Semino, the same as in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus showed John through symbols. So, we make this point. The default language of the book of Revelation is signs and symbols. By the way, we do well to understand that by and large, the default language of Scripture should start, we should default that what is said is literal. It's what happened, not, not literal as in a word-for-word transcription of God's voice, but these are literal happenings. It's the way the Bible is intended to be read and understood. There are times, of course, without announcement, but that we can deduce and figure out, the Psalms are laced with them, that there are symbols that cannot be taken as literal, but we have to dig to find out, and our default is that it is literal, and then we work from there. In Revelation, the principle flips because it is announced in the first verse that this is symbolic. There are things in the book of Revelation that are literal, But the default language of the book of Revelation, symbols and signs, and so the question that we deploy with us as we search, as we study, as we seek to understand is this, what is the deeper symbolic meaning? You could know something was going to happen, but if it carries a message about who God is here in this room right now, That is meaningful. That is meaningful. So as we unpack, I want to share just a couple other principles then for for thinking about biblical symbolism. So go with me as you, if you dare, (laughs) to, to think this through a little bit. Now first thing I want to say is God uses the language of the past and the present as he shares symbolic language, okay? What what do we even mean? Well, in this case, John is writing. Daniel might have been writing. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they would be writing prophecy, right? And as God and Jesus are giving these messages to to these writers, which, by the way, one can think of as an illustration of how this all works You remember when Moses says to God he can't go help lead the children of Israel out of Egypt because he doesn't know how to speak? And God says, I have known you were going to have that objection so clearly that months from before now, or at least a month before now, I tapped your brother on the shoulder and said, you better start heading out to meet Moses. So I've made a provision for you, and Moses, you are going to have somebody speak for you in the language that you feel like you're not confident in, and you will be to Aaron and Aaron will be to you like you are to me. Think about that, what that says about how what Moses wrote was inspired. Because the the notion is, 
hey, I, Moses, you don't feel like you speak the language clearly enough, but you speak a language that Aaron can understand. So Aaron is going to put things in his language. Just like you are putting things in your language, you are translating for me into humanity what is happening. It's a fascinating, you know, our, our faith tradition believes in thought inspiration rather than word-by-word inspiration. That simply put, God is etch-a-sketching the pen of Moses around the page. No, no. Thoughts are being given to Moses, and Moses puts him into his own language. Now think about it in terms of prophecy. How would it work for God to give illustration to John visually or by word from our day and time and decided he was going to use a cell phone as a symbol for John. John would have no idea what was happening here, would not be able to put this in his own language. No, in fact, God uses the time and place, the present and the past of the prophet himself or herself the things that they know to try to explain things they can't quite know. This is a difficult proposition. And it leads us to situations like the one I'm gonna share with you, we could find others. I wanna take you to Isaiah chapter 11 to just illustrate for a moment something that can kinda blow your mind a little bit in terms of what it is that God even is trying to do here. In Isaiah chapter 11, a prophecy is given about the deliverance of God's people And what we're going to notice is that while the language, it it applies, and we can see the fulfillment, that the exact language of the prophecy is not fulfilled in match with the language itself. And we'll understand why in a minute. Here we go. In the 15th verse, the Lord, Isaiah says, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind, and he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. By the way, does that remind you of anything? It might remind you of of the children of Israel being led through the Red Sea. This is a, a massive theme in the Old Testament scriptures. And so Isaiah is he's taking what he knows and to describe what he is seeing or being told and then goes on to say, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So, the components. A prophecy about Israel in captivity under the Assyrians and their deliverance by God parting the Euphrates so that they walk on dry ground like the Jordan River, like the, the Red Sea, so that they can cross over. Here's the problem. The fulfillment of this are the people of Judah, not Israel, being delivered from Babylon, not Assyria, by way of Cyrus, who diverts the waters going into Babylon so that they can cross, you remember it all in Daniel, so that they can cross in through the city and take over the city without even fighting over it, so that the people of Judah that are the Jews, the Hebrews, that are let go free will cross on the bridges of Babylon into freedom. So wait a minute. How is it that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy? Now think about it. When Isaiah writes this prophecy, Babylon has no power whatsoever. They are subjugated by Assyria. And by the way, the children of Israel, that's Israel. By the time the prophecy is fulfilled, many of those tribes have been dismantled and disintegrated and it's Judah that is captured by Babylon. But how is it that God would get this point across to Isaiah? Okay, so Babylon, I know, I know, I know, I know. You know, it it doesn't make any sense to you that Judah will be delivered by Babylon, from Babylon by the Persian king. Yeah, it's not going to make much sense. In fact, what God does is he uses the understanding of the prophet to convey and communicate. And if this makes you feel fragile, buckle up. 
Because God somehow willingly has strapped himself to humanity. And instead of simply writing a book in his language that you and I would never understand, he's allowed it to be placed in human terms using what we know. So that when John writes the book of Revelation, he is using what he knows. And things that are even disorienting and a little out of control, he is using language. By the way, interestingly, the symbols will be shown by Jesus, but then they will be worded by John, right? In fact, a little later in the book of, uh, in the first chapter of Revelation, as John is describing Jesus himself, he will say, and his hair was like, and he will, he will give a symbol. Because the prophet is using what they understand to attempt to explain what can't even be known fully yet. So that we could understand, prophecy is a natural extension of the prophet's time and place. So for us to be a little arrogant and think, okay, so all we have to care about is what we know and not what John knew, then we're missing the boat, right? We need to dig around and think through what he understood, his use of the Old Testament and the New Testament and stories, sometimes even um, uh, fables about gods in Asia in the church's areas that he is writing to and what they have come to understand. These are the points of language for him. Second point that I want to make in terms of understanding biblical symbolism is um, it's always clearest during or after its fulfillment. That is wildly dissatisfying for some. Some of us, we study uh, the book of Revelation to find out what 9-11 was, or COVID is, or I invite you into this challenge. Study the prophecies throughout Scripture and locate the ones where the people who were given the prophecy understood it accurately before it was fulfilled. You're going to be in a tough, tough study because it's nearly 100% that there, well, and it is 100% that it isn't fully understood, but often it's not even close. Right? So that Jesus coming and his journey to the cross could be predicted by Daniel and the people would have no idea. So I ought not be too arrogant about what it is that's happening inside of me and my understanding as I'm studying scripture, which may make you think, well, then why even study it at all? I'm going to turn you to Jesus' words. Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he prophesied his own death and resurrection and the disciples are meeting afterwards in an upper room distraught because it's a failure, an abject failure, even though Jesus said, well, this is what's gonna happen and by the way, pay attention tomorrow morning because I'm gonna raise myself from the grave. And he can walk through walls and they're freaked out because it's a ghost, right? No, it's the prophesied one. And in one of these occasions in John chapter 14, as he is telling them about, again, I am going to be leaving you soon. I just want you to know this. And yes, the crucifixion, resurrection, you can't seem to put all of this together in a way that makes a ton of sense. But that's what I'm telling you. He then says these words in the 29th verse. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Think through the math of that statement. What he didn't say is, I've told you now so that you would know now what will happen. He's looking him in the eye and he can see. He can see in their eyes. They don't get it. And by the way, there is a part of our study of Revelation which we won't know which is which, but we are likely not to get it all. So then why study it? Because then when it does happen, we will be filled with faith. Surely you've watched some television show or movie when there's been that aha moment of, duh, duh. All the signals were there. All the dialogue added to this. I didn't see it coming. 
And God is saying, pay attention, study up, know my word. By the way, I've been dropping hints and clues since this book began. And so, we understand that the purpose of biblical symbolism is not to be tricky with us, not to play coy, nor is it primarily for me to be able to be certain that I'm the one who's right about how things are going to go. It is rather to build up my faith. I like this quote from John Pauline who says, prophecy is not given to satisfy our curiosity about the future. I've got to admit, there have been plenty of times when those who want to study the book of Revelation are doing so because they're curious about how to predict the future or how this particular event snaps into a timeline or a chart. It's not given to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It is given to strengthen our faith, to teach us how to live as we prepare for the future a much bigger deal. This starts to make sense then as we read the New Testament. We recall these words from, from Paul in Romans chapter 11 on the 33rd verse. He says, Oh, the depth, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God that you and I, we cannot exhaust. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Do you have, uh, for those of you that are married in the room, have you exhausted the knowledge of your spouse of who they are? No, 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 no. About the time you get a handle on one thing, it's, and by the way, that in large part is the adventure of love is that there is more. How unsearchable, how high, how deep, how wide, and some of us want to say, well, I'll tell you how wide is that. Wait, yes, no. You've got your arms around some part of it, but it's wider, it's deeper, it is more. So as Jesus attempts to part the curtain on who he is, he knows this is just the beginning of our understanding. One more thing before we test drive some of this is that there is a a difference, and maybe you haven't thought about this, but there can be a difference between what scholars will call classical and apocalyptic um, prophecy. I'll give you an example of a classical uh, prophecy. Classical prophecy is often much more local to the prophet themselves. It is in the near time rather than the far time often. Near time can be even a couple hundred years or whatever, right? That's still near, comparatively speaking. And it is somewhat localized, can in fact be conditional. Take the story of Jonah. Jonah's told by God, go and preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh and tell them they're about to die. Just let them know. Because of, your, because of what you stand for, who you are, what you're doing, you're about to die. And Jonah goes and he does it and they repent and then Jonah is ticked off because they don't die. And God never said they're going to die if they don't know. He said they're going to die. But this is a classical prophecy. God doesn't even feel a need to let him know it's conditional, but there are conditions that are involved because, by the way, we should also always ask, what does this tell us about Jesus? And what the story of Nineveh tells us about Jesus is he is even willing to look a fool to save you. If you would turn to him, he will save you. It matters not what you have done if you are the worst in the room. He would save you. Now, apocalyptic prophecy. Let's take the second coming of Christ. It's far time. It's a part of the overarching story of God's complete rescue of humanity and it's not conditional. It's not a matter of will he come back or not. This is something different. Well, 
what scholars will remind us is that in a book like Revelation, there can be mixtures of both. And wow, isn't that confusing? Because I wanted to know how to this. Oh, no, no, no. It's about growing your faith. And so, we're going to dip into a little piece of the first chapter of Revelation, and we're going to test drive a couple of these principles, if you don't mind. We'll keep doing that as we go further and further in the next week and the ones to come. So you go to Revelation chapter 1, and a fourth verse in, you're going to read this. We read it last week. John, John, to the seven stars, written like a letter. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth shall mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega now in quotes from Jesus, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty, the present one, the one who will never leave you, your rescuer. So we're going to deploy, as we dip into this, these three questions that we've now outlined, right? The first one is, well, what does this tell us about Jesus? The second one, we're not going to ignore, what does the Old Testament say? Is there any connection to something from the Old Testament that would tell us where this puzzle piece even comes from, helping us unpack its meaning a little bit? And beyond that, there are symbols, and what is the deeper meaning here? So the seventh verse says this. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. What does that remind you of? What connection do you make? Anyone? Maybe it's rhetorical. So we see him coming with the clouds and we might think about Jesus' second coming and the trumpet blare and Jesus comes in the clouds and that could very well be the connection here. Of course, we read in the 22nd chapter uh, that he will say, I am coming, I am coming, I am coming. And when we do that kind of math and we read this, so Jesus at his second coming, every eye will see him. Yeah, yeah, I remember that part too. And those who pierced him, okay, now time out. Okay, so you have uh, like Roman guards who pierced his side. You could have, by extension, Pilate or Caiaphas who sentenced him or maybe even completed the picture with those who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, right? And so what would that tell us about Jesus? Doesn't that almost feel like there's a little bit of a ha-ha in there? Like, uh, <clears throat> you got it so way wrong, you're going to have to watch this now. <laughs> ah, but there could be more. Could it be that this goes a little deeper and that there are clues that we can unpack what this is saying maybe a little bit more clearly? Let's deploy some of our questions. What does it say about Jesus? Is the Old Testament somehow involved in this telling? And by the way, are there symbols here to tell us more. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 has some echoes throughout this particular passage. As, you, as we said last week, there are, there are no actual verses of Scripture from the Old Testament that are directly quoted, but they are directly puzzle-pieced on in. So check out Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now this is a part of a story that is not exactly the second coming of Christ and so now there's a little bit of a tip here that there could be even something else that is going on. And if we were to do a little search, you would find more than just these, but in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Nahum, Psalms, and so on, there's a phrase about one who is on the clouds, but it is God himself who is on the clouds. 
So much so that scholars would now tell us that there is a figure, a symbol. The symbol of being on the clouds is a way to say this is God. By the way, do you know that in our own faith community there are questions about whether Jesus is God? John won't get out of chapter 1 in the book of Revelation without saying, by the way, Jesus is God. Because he's the one who comes on clouds. When you see him, first of all, know this, he arrives, he is present, he is with us, and he is the deified, he is God himself. So that, by the way, what John would be saying is, when we in the first verse say that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is an attack, it is an attempt, it is a part of the war of words over who God himself is. And whether you have safety in trusting him at all, because that's the conversation in this universe if you didn't know. Is a God who says, I love you and I would give everything for you, and an opposer who says, no, 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 not true. He does not. He's vindictive. He's petty. He wants to exclude you, exclude you from what's rightfully yours, force you into subjugation. He's the very kind of God who would love to raise up some people so he could say, ha, ha, in their face. Hmm. And John is saying, whoa, 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 time out. I'm telling you, when we consider Jesus, we are considering the very character of God. So let's go forward, knowing that the revelation of Jesus is in fact the revelation of God himself. Of course, you recall it. Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you see the Father. So I'm gonna part the curtain on who I am and just know this, I'm parting the curtain on all of heaven so that you can have confidence and faith in him. But what about this? Every eye shall see him part. Do you know that this comes from the book of Zechariah? The puzzle pieces as we open up this scriptures, if you knew, as those Hebrew Judeo Christians would know, and they would teach others, this is a, this is a fragments of puzzle pieces coming straight out of the book of Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12 if you'd like. I'll do it for you if you don't have the patience. <laughs> Yeah, you hit, hit the book of Matthew and take a left. <laughs> Jump over Malachi, you, you'll get there. Zechariah chapter 12. In verse 10 it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication before you go anywhere else. What is this saying about who Jesus is? He is the God of grace. He is the God who would bathe you in grace. And now we get to it in the 10th verse. It goes on. They will look on me, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And on that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of, of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And so, way before Jesus was even crucified, the prophet Zechariah describes this conversation of God that John will loop into the seventh verse of the first chapter of Revelation, saying he will come, this, this is God himself. He comes and every eye will see him. By the way, every eye in, in Zechariah is every, every one of our family of faith. Because by the way, at that time in Zechariah, there had been all sorts of falling away from the true God and there had been idolatry and there had been mixing in of other faiths and all sorts of other, so that they were doing, they were creating their own God and the God who is real shows up and every eye can see him. By the way, as he shows up, he pre-announces that he comes with grace. But the people who see him and his Piercedness are filled with sorrow and a clarity of what they have done. I just ask you have, you, have you found some way to navigate this life without a clarity of who you are and what you have done? 
Is it possible that some of us in this room have been playing religion in the face of a God who comes with grace and scars? Because he took your life on himself. And he paid a price that otherwise would be mine to pay. And in those moments of deep truth, as I stare into the face of God, even in a spiritual way, and I hear his voice as he says, I come to you with grace and supplication. You will come before me and you will know who you are and who I am and the grand great chasm of difference. But if your heart is humbled... If you will repent, if you will sorrow, I tell you this, every time you bring yourself to me, I will bathe you in this grace. You find it. You may be tempted to conclude the book of Zechariah before the 13th chapter, or to conclude this message of Zechariah before the 13th chapter. Don't, because the first verse goes with it along with all this weeping, I mean true-hearted sorrow over how far they have wandered from God. And Zechariah finishes this prophecy by saying, and on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and iniquity. This is, these are the puzzle pieces that John is using in this seventh verse. So that as we unpack it and we try to understand what this could be saying of Jesus, Jesus will say, I, yes, I am coming in the second coming, but guess what? I'm also coming on the 3rd of September to the Collegedale Seventh-day Adventist Church, whether you are in the seats or you're watching online. I am coming there. Know this, when Jesus shows up, he shows up with so much grace we could never exhaust it. But he shows up as the pierced, wounded God who paid our price for us. In the kind of way that sends us to our knees, convicted of what we deserve and what we do not. And it is possible that right here, right now, we could play act this moment, but Jesus is here. And he comes with grace to cover your life and your situation, but it requires an acknowledgement, a true-heartedness that says, I know who I am, and I know how much I need you, and I have hurt you, and I am am gutted. Please. Please. Please, forgive me. And on that day, this day, fresh water flows that will cleanse you and me. Whenever, if ever, we turn to him, And John doesn't want to make it out of the first chapter without saying what this book of Revelation is about is what this whole book of the Bible is about. It is about a God who would not leave you behind, who would chase you through the calendar, who would seek you across the planets, and who would pay the price to have the right to redeem you. He is your rescuer who brings healing, not retribution. He is coming to you as your rescuer. Oh, there's difficulty on the page, in the pages of Revelation, and we'll get through some of them, but we will not move past this without bookending this truth that this is the one who says he is coming. John will say, he is coming. It is God himself, this Jesus of ours. He is coming, and when he is coming, every eye will see him, those who crucified him. By the way, you don't have to look to Pontius Pilate. All you have to do is look down the row. Better yet, put up a mirror. You are the one. I am the one who crucified him. 
He is coming with healing in his wings, this God of ours, Jesus, who will say in the 22nd chapter, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy. Behold, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. Yes, I'm coming soon. My whole plan is to rescue you, whether it be in forgiveness today or to give you eternal life in the days to come. I am all about your rescue. Even so, amen, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we pray for the safety and security that can only happen as you resolve this whole war and your second coming. Father, we recognize, like, like my friend Roger, who I visited with this last Thursday evening, that our lives here are not eternal without your rescue. For some, it's only a matter of days or hours. But Lord God, even deeper than this, right here in this room right now, there are lost souls that you seek to save. May we not leave this room without laying claim to the blood of Jesus Christ, the rescue of our Savior, the one with healing in his wings, who will cleanse us with a river of forgiveness and grace. So Lord, we proclaim it. We are yours. We are yours. We are yours. Come, Lord Jesus, to our lives today to take us home with you. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.